Hey, welcome in. It is Downtown the Podcast, episode number 114. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell here from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, where we uh, do our daily show downtown Monday through Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Zone Radio stations of Maine, streaming audio available at our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Two very interesting conversations on the program this week. We talk about, well, a couple of iconic television shows. Later on, author and TV critic Jennifer Cation Armstrong looks back 50 years to the start of the Mary Tyler Moore show, uh, the makings of the show, how it all came together, and what a unique show it was in a number of uh, areas, particularly with their use of female writers on the show. We'll talk about that coming up a little bit later on. But we get things underway this week by talking with an actress who was, uh, well, in one of the most iconic shows of the 50s and early 60s, The Donna Reed Show, where she played daughter Mary Stone for several seasons. Went on to a career in the movies, co-starring with Elvis Presley on three different occasions. And then a long stretch as Christine Armstrong in the hit TV series, Coach. Here's our conversation with actress, oh, and sometimes singer, Shelley Febre. Shelley, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Rich. I'm very honored to be on your show, and um, thank you very much. Well, you know, we've been bothering your husband, Mike, for several years, so we thought we should spread it around. Well, I appreciate that very much. <laughs> I must say, he's only said the nicest things about you, so uh, thank you from him. I'm glad to well. hear that. Well, well, I want to talk about your remarkable career in the business that uh, started at, at a very early age. Is it is it true you began, in a sense, as a, a fashion model at the age of three? <laughs> yes. It's, um, I probably wouldn't call it a fashion model, but yes, I was. Uh, my sister and I were both part of, um, there was a designer who lived very close to where we lived in Hollywood, and she had a beautiful salon, and she wanted children in her, uh, in her uh, lineup. And she came, went around to the neighborhood and asked all the mothers if they'd let their kids be in a modeling show. And my mother said yes, and that, that was it. I was three years old, my sister was six, and we started right then. So it's been a long, long time. <laughs> and you were doing television, you were doing movies, and one of your first uh, big films was uh, not bad when you're co-starring with Rock Hudson in Never Say Goodbye. That's right. It, he was such a nice, nice man. And, um it was it was a lovely lovely experience. I, I look back on it with great fondness and uh, and to him as as well. He was just as I said, a very sweet man. You were also in one of the iconic television productions, uh, Our Town, which featured Frank Sinatra and Paul Newman. And, and if I remember right, it was for that specific production that the song "Love and Marriage" was written. That's right. The um, the writers were Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen, names that I'm sure most everybody knows. And, um, and yes, they wrote four songs for Love and Marriage and um, the one called The Impatient Years. But Love and Marriage is the one that everybody uh, that does remember remembers that one. It was a, a great song, and uh, it was woven into the show. I, that, that is my favorite American play, I just think it's uh, absolutely wonderful. It's so moving, and uh, I didn't know anything about it at the time. I was I was young, and it just had not come into my <laughs> frame of reference yet. But 
I fell in love with the show, and I was, to this day, I'm so proud to have been part of that. And it was, uh, yes, it was Frank Sinatra, even Marie Saint played uh, <laughs> Emily, and uh, Paul Newman played uh, George. So it was, uh, it and wonderful character actors were in the show, too. Um, Sylvia Phil and Ernest Truex, husband and wife in real life, and they played husband and wife in a ton of things. Anyway, it was a remarkable remarkable experience i was scared to death because it was being done live right. and um but i i did live through it <laughs> so uh i'm very happy that it's there to be seen by some people at some time you got the role at, i believe the age of 14 as mary stone on the donna reed show and uh, began shooting uh, in the summer of 1950 i believe i was i was a whopping 11 days old when you began shooting Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, how have you been since? Uh, it's, it's gone by very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. 1958 is when we started shooting the show. And, um, yes, I was four, I turned 14 in January, and we started on July 14th. Our first day of shooting was Bastille Day, July 14th, 1958. So... Uh, we're coming on 60 years now, I think. So it's uh, it, that's also quite a, an amazing memory to have and uh, experience to have. The show airs on cable here every day. And, of course, during the quarantine, a little more time on our hands. And, and I've, I've been watching the show pretty frequently. And sometimes oh. the sitcoms from the 50s and 60s get that rap of being a little bit unrealistic. And, yes, things resolve within 30 minutes. We know that. But... But it's a it's a very well done show. The writing is terrific. The acting is wonderful, and I, I find the relationships to be to be pretty honest. And the characters are real; they're not caricatures. That's absolutely true. Um, it's one of the things that we were all so proud of. And as time went on, I, I understood more and more what the kind of shows that you're talking about that that were on then and and are still on now, even more so now, that are really um they're not character driven at all they are they're it's three lines and a joke and then three lines and a joke and um we always prided ourselves and i have to lay this directly at the um feet of donna reed she was uh, an enormous um an enormous talent and she was very very proud of the show and was very insistent that um that it be a real show and it turns out that the four of us who did the show donna carl paul and myself um we really did become a family we really the 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 love and the um enjoyment of each other and then the the aggravation between the brothers and sister brother and sister mary and jeff uh that was all very real it was uh it was based in reality and uh it, uh, I agree with you. I, I don't see the show out here very often, um, but every so often something, and through the years as I traveled around the country for Alzheimer's Association, I would walk into a hotel room and uh, the TV would go on and I'd suddenly realize that I was saying the lines along with it would be a, a rerun of the Donna Riccio. So it was, uh, it was amazing. It was such a great experience. Donna became my second mother, absolutely. And um, Paul and I are still absolutely brother and sister and have been for all these years. And um, Carl was 
adorable and kind and um he was a lovely shakespearean actor and uh he was um very very um i'll say too too um knowledgeable of acting to be doing something that wasn't good and so the donna reed show was a perfect fit for him because he was so handsome and uh had such a uh a good doctor <laughs> essence to him anyway and there was nobody like donna reed she was um as I said, she was my second mother, and she was uh, a woman of enormous integrity and kindness. And um, she just, uh, I don't have enough words. I still carry her with me every day. I still hear her giving me, um, oh, little tips about things to do or not to do <laughs> and to speak up for myself and all those sort of things. It was, it was uh, I was very, very blessed to have been cast in that show because of certainly professionally it was a very good thing but more than that personally it was a a huge influence on my life and remains so today uh, paul peterson has been a tireless advocate for child actors through the years how, how did you get through uh, the experience of um, you said starting at three years old how do you get through that with your sense of self intact well it's um i was very lucky to have the parents that i did and that um, they were very um, just determined that um, my sister was working at that same time and um, that we would both stay just sort of grounded, you know. Uh, there, there are ways that it's referred to now, but uh, the best way to say it, I think, is that we were grounded in reality. You know, we still had our home chores and we went to school and et cetera, et cetera. And they were just uh, determined that we would have as normal a life as possible, given the um, the structure that we were in, which is not very normal to be an actor and be going to school and uh, being on a hit television series and that sort of stuff. Um, but they were uh, adamant that we stay very, as I said, very grounded. And it, it is true that Paul has, um, he started this organization called excuse me, a minor consideration. And it's been going on now for years and years. And he felt very, um, very strongly that, uh, and he's right about this, it's very, very difficult to be, to be an actor, period, is very difficult. But to be a child actor has uh, other um, desires and needs, things that need to be answered. And it just doesn't happen for most kids. They're not lucky enough to um, get in with such wonderful people as, as Paul and I both did. And Paul was determined that he would do something to help other kids. And the idea of a minor, of a minor consideration was that um, it would be for kids who became well-known when they were youngsters. And then what usually happens is they they grow up, as we do, and uh, and they would not be working anymore. And it was very, very, very hard transition to make to be, because uh, you're so um, taken care of and, uh, and people are always asking if you're okay, if you're all right, et cetera. All very, very nice things, but it sets up a, an, unex uh, an unreal expectation mm. so that when you're through working, when you're not hired anymore, um, as a child, because, you know, children think that they're the center of the world anyway, whether they're working or not, and, um, and it becomes very hard to understand 
what happened to all of those people who every day were saying, Shelly, how are you? Paul, how are you? What's, you know, just they were totally um, uh, cognizant of us and, and tried very hard to be uh, warm and loving to us. And in essence, the day the show stops filming, in essence, those people disappear. Now, what happens is that they, they go on to do other shows, which you now understand. But as a teenager, as a young person and a teenager, that's very hard to um, to understand. It just everybody was there, and then they're suddenly not there. And uh, so Paul made it his business to start this organization where he has devoted his years, years and years of his life, to um, helping kids who had tough times getting through. And there's a reason why you hear of so many kids who are child stars who go on and have a rough time. They get involved with drugs and with alcohol and just make all sorts of bad choices. And it's it's it does have to do with the person themselves, but it more has to do with the life that they've been leading. You know, they're 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 catered to and they're um Anyway, all the things that don't happen after you're through working. And uh, so it's it's hard. And Paul has done a magnificent job of helping other kids and um, making sure that they are that they know that they're not alone, that uh, most of us have gone through the same thing. And uh, he's wonderful. I'm so proud of him and what he's done with his life. It's been uh, remarkable. We're talking with Shelley Febre here on Downtown. Was it Donna Reed's husband, Tony Owen, who, uh, well, let's say, persuaded you to record Johnny Angel? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, put those quotation marks around, persuaded me, yes. He um, he mentioned to Paul Peterson and to me, he said, oh, we have a great idea, because at this point, Ricky Nelson was, of course, doing Ozzy and Harriet, and he started singing, and he was, you know, a teenage star right then. And... Um, Television itself is sort of a, a business of lemmings. You know, if something works well for one group, they say, oh, well, we should do that. So Tony saw that Ricky Nelson had become a big recording star, so he came to Paul and to me, and he said, we have a great idea. He said, next year on the show, he said, we're going to have um, each of you sing some songs, and uh, we're going to record them, and we'll put out the records. And I, I literally can still feel my, my head kind of exploding at the time that he said that. And I said, oh, Mr. Owen, I said, that, yes, that's a, very, that's a very good idea. I said, but I'm so sorry. I said, I can't, I can't do that. And he said, why not? And I said, I, I can't sing. I said, now, Paul is a wonderful singer. He'll be great. I said, but it's not something I can do. And so, oh, a while later, he came up to me and he said one day, he said, Shelley, he said, um, do you do you enjoy being on the show? And I said, oh, I was kind of stunned at the question, but I said, oh, yes, Mr. Owen. I said, I, you know, I love being on the show. And he said, ah then sing <laughs> and that was it <laughs> i sang um and then it, the amazing thing happened it turned out to be the first record was johnny angel and and nobody could believe myself most of all that it became a hit and um it, it just i've had so many interesting experiences in my life and that was certainly one of them i understand when you went to, to do the final recording of it you get into the studio and you look around, and we had Hal Blaine on the show a few years ago, and oh, it was it was the Wrecking Crew working as the the musicians for you. Yes, 
That's right. It was it was unbelievable. I looked around, and yes, there was Hal Blaine. Glenn Campbell was one of the um, uh, guitar players on the record. I mean, just um, the names that that are known by people in the business who know about who those people were. I mean, they would. I would hear them say, "This is the thing that always made me laugh." I it would be the end of my session, whatever I was recording at that time. And then the musicians would talk to themselves, you know, in between takes and stuff. And I'd hear these kinds of conversations. Somebody would say, how, um, are you going over to, uh, Ella's, Ella's recording session? He said, no, he said, I'm doing Frank's, uh, later. <laughs> he said, so and you know, you don't, you didn't need to listen for very long to understand who they were talking about. <laughs> And it was uh, it was just great, and they were so sweet to me. I I, um, I was so terrified the, the entire time I was recording, but they were all um, they were just wonderful, wonderful to me. I'm a big fan of the Twilight Zone, so anytime we have somebody on who appeared in an episode, I I have to ask. So, what was your experience of doing black leather jackets? That's right, black leather jackets. It was um, it was a, a great experience. I was. Um, uh, I, I, I say that about everything. I, I'm sure there were some bad experiences, but I don't remember <laughs> them very much, um, and some not great people. But that's really minor compared to the people that I met and that I got to work with. Um, the Twilight Zone was very popular at that time, not as popular as it ultimately ended up being, but um, it was, you know, a great storyline. It was uh, Lee Kinsolving, a very, very wonderful young actor. At that time, and uh, he was he played um, the main rider of the uh, the motorcycles that came into our little small town, and um, he he I fell for him, and he fell for me, and you know he was an alien, so <laughs> there was <laughs> there was no future for us, but um, it was just, it was very exciting, and I to this day. I have actually a funny story about it. When Mike and I were um, still just dating, we hadn't gotten engaged or married or anything at that point. And um, and Mike and and his first wife had had split up, and um, neither of Mike's kids, um, Aaron and Mike, um, were all that thrilled with me coming onto the scene. Now, their mother and father had been divorced for quite a long time, but they still, you know, kids still want their parents to be together. So they um, they just weren't all that crazy about me. And I kept wanting to say to them, I'm honest to God, I'm really a nice person. You know, he just have to <laughs> give me a little bit of time to get to know me. Anyway, one day I went over to Mike's house and um, he had this little breakfast room area. And um, I walked in and Mike, his son, was... Um, sitting at this table in the breakfast room and um he looked up at me and he was he was just getting to that age of being um hello i'm cool and you're not you know <laughs> that was the sort of attitude of everything uh, he was very sweet but it was it was just very funny anyway he looked at me and he kind of looked up from this big book that he was reading and he said um he said shelly he said you you he said, I, I know you're an actress. He said, but you, you, um, he said, have you ever heard of the Twilight Zone? And I said, um, yes, yes, I have. <laughs> and he said, you, um, and he looked back down at the book and he said, you, you weren't in an episode of 
the Twilight Zone. You didn't act in one, did you? And I said, yes, I did. <laughs> and he said, you did? And I said, yes. And then he looked back down at the book again and he said, were you in the episode called Black Leather Jacket? <laughs> and I could see my, my worth going way, way up in his estimation. I, it was the beginning of him having something to do with me. It was, it was very, very funny. He just could not, and to this day, still has a hard time believing that I was in the Twilight Zone. But uh, I was, and uh, it helped me a great deal with, <laughs> with the kids. Shelley Febre with us on Downtown. You did three movies more than anybody else uh, with Elvis Presley. And uh, I'm I, trying to imagine what it must have been like the first time uh, you met him and he came into the room. Did it did it sort of take the air out of the room when he walked in? Yes, it did. It was an amazing experience. Um, we were actually, it was the first day of filming. And um, I, hadn't, I hadn't met him before this. And we, we did have... Um, dance rehearsals where the uh, the choreographer was a, uh, a wonderful dancer by the name of David Winters and Tony Basil who is uh, his assistant at that time was his assistant teaching me Tony Basil David. who did Mickey later on right yes 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 absolutely she she was fabulous and she is fabulous but she was really I I never met anybody quite like Tony and she was just a great, great dancer, and and very kind to me because I was, I was scared doing all of it, but I was re- as scared as I was singing. I, that's how much scared, how much more scared I was doing the dancing. Anyway, um, but Elvis wasn't there for any of the rehearsals. There was another man, very talented man. His name was Lance Legault, and he was Elvis's like dancing. He he could move like Elvis. He he just could do all of the numbers and he he played Elvis in the dance rehearsals and it was it ultimately ended up I mean nobody was Elvis but it ended up being like working with Elvis because he he had done so many movies as Elvis in the rehearsals that he was um he was incredibly good so I had never met Elvis so we're on the set for the first day and um I'm I'm on the set itself. We're getting ready to shoot, but nobody, he's not there yet. So um, all of a sudden, I just, I, something happened. And um, everybody kind of stopped talking and sort of looked around. And and then I sort of followed where they were looking. And I couldn't believe it. Now, I have to stop and say here, I was not a huge Elvis Presley fan. I, I I liked him and I loved his music, but I wasn't one of those, you know, one of the screaming fans. <laughs> that wasn't my, I, I loved Jimmy Stewart at the time. So my, my, my taste was somewhat different. But this man came walking onto the set and I, it is true. He sucked the air out of the room. It was, there was a, um, uh, sense of him that was just uh, so powerful and he was uh, sweet and charming to everybody he was very 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 kind but very nice and and very accessible and uh but i just couldn't believe it i i i found myself thinking this doesn't sound like it was such a great thing to say to yourself but i went oh my god it's elvis presley and i couldn't <laughs> believe it i and he was walking over to start talking to me because we were going to be in the scene together and i just thought oh my god i can't do this anyway it was quite something <laughs> and you became very good friends and, and 
it seems like a big part of that was the fact that you were a, a newlywed at the time, so you didn't have to deal with any of the romantic interest, and you could just be people. That's right, and that's exactly right. And I had just gotten married just before we did um, started the show. We were married June seventh of nineteen sixty four, and uh, we started working like June seventeenth or something like that. And um, yeah, and he, you know how you meet certain people, and you just just from the kind of get go, you say, you know, hi, hi, and you just feel as though. You've known that person, you know, forever, and uh, you just sort of click. And I, if if one has an experience, it's sort of hard to understand. But if you ever have, or just somebody that you just like immediately, well, that happened. I would say for the two of us, we just uh, we just sort of clicked. And yes, absolutely, there was no um, romance between us. It was just that we really, really liked one another enormously and we ended up doing three pictures together so they were they were great great experiences they were never great movies they were simply great (laughs) fun (laughs) to make we had a a wonderful time doing them really wonderful i have to ask you about a tv movie you did because i don't know however old i was at the time a teenager but i I think it was the first time i I cried at a movie, but then felt yes. bad about it. But then I realized all my other dumb guy friends were crying too when Absolutely. you played Brian Piccolo's wife in Brian's song. That's right. <laughs> I, I was honored to play Joy Piccolo in that incredible movie. Um, it, it is. I, I can't hear the opening few bars of the music that starts at the very top of the show. And as soon as I hear that, I'm already gone. I just, <laughs> I start, I start crying. It just is so, it's such a powerful movie. Jimmy Kahn was so fabulous. And uh, Billy D. Williams was extraordinary. Everybody who was in it was just great. And, um, and it's such a moving, moving story. And, um, you know, when you're moving, doing something like that, None of us had any. We all knew that it was a good script. I mean, you could just read it and kind of go, "Oh, this is, you know, this doesn't come along very often." But you didn't have any idea that it was going to have the life that it had. And also, it it was one of the first movies of the week, movies for television. Right. So it didn't have any, you know, built-in audience for it. But word got out about the show and. Um, Obviously, it became a, a huge hit, and in fact, they ultimately released it as a movie. Right. Movie, and um, I got to go to Chicago, and I was a strange experience. I was sitting next to Billy, Billy D. Williams, watching the movie with him, and uh, it was it was unreal. It really was. It was uh, a great experience. Uh, I, say, I keep saying those same things all the time. It's true. <laughs> well, another TV fun. movie that was, uh, and I imagine, a very good experience for you was Memorial Day, working with Mike Farrell. Absolutely, absolutely. That was, uh, a, 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 and also a wonderful, wonderful movie, and uh, was very highly held in regard in high regard by a lot of people. And again, I was thrilled to be able to do that. And. Uh, Yes, people remember that very fondly as well. And, and, am I right that I remember from Mike's book that you got married in uh, in your aunt Nanette's garden? That's right. We were married in her garden, her backyard, and it was she has a beautiful backyard that she she was a great gardener, and um, 
and it was gorgeous. And yes, we were married. Um, we were married there. It was really beautiful. We were married just at, as the sun was setting, and she lives in the Pacific. She lived in the Pacific Palisades, and it was um, a beautiful garden, a beautiful area of town. And uh, yes, there we were getting married. <laughs> Yeah, a wonderful run on one of the best series of the, the late 80s and the 90s. Coach was such a great cast. You earned a couple of Emmy nominations for your role as Christine Fox, and that was just one of those terrific comedy ensembles. Thank you very much. On behalf of everybody who was in the show, I thank you. Um, I, I felt the same way. We all did. We we loved the show, and and I thought it was just wonderfully done. It was also extraordinarily well written and uh, and produced and uh, just we cared about it so much. We did it for nine years and um, it was, I still re- run into people nowadays who say, oh God, you know the show that I really love the most, they said, was Coach and it always thrills me because it, it, it was such a, it was a funny show and it was a tender show and because two of the people, particularly Craig T. Nelson and Jerry Van Dyke, uh, <coughs> excuse me, were both. Um, Jerry Van Dyke was the funniest person I ever met in my <laughs> life. He just is absolutely hysterical. I, I can't even begin to tell you the things he would say and do, and he was just. He just adored him. And Craig is one of the great actors I think of all time. He was, he was great at the comedy that was inherent in the show. And then the show would switch very quickly um, to a very dramatic scene or a very sad scene or something. And not a lot of actors can do that, make that switch and make both the funny very funny and the sad uh, or touching very touching. And Craig could do that unbelievably well. So they were... uh, They were great and very... uh, Craig received an Emmy Award for that. I was always heartsick that Jerry didn't, but but um, but Craig did get one, and that was well, well deserved. And then a whole new generation of fans got to appreciate your work uh, as Ma Kent on Superman and in Justice <laughs> League as well. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me laugh. I'm not sure <laughs> that that people reacted to it that same way, but, but we had fun doing it. It was... Uh, yeah, it was an interesting thing to do. Well, we have enjoyed your work for so many years. It's been great for us to have the opportunity to talk with you this afternoon. Shelly, we appreciate you making time for us and uh, give our best to Mike as well. And Stay safe, be well, and hopefully we can do it again down the road. I hope so, too, and thank you just very much for letting me um, be part of your show. I'm happy, happy to do it, so thank you. A wonderful conversation with Shelly Fabre. Here on downtown, and some great stories and memories there about her remarkable career in the business. We'll take a break for this word from Cross Insurance, and when we come back, we look back on the Mary Tyler Moore Show with author and television critic Jennifer Cation Armstrong. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.
the season one theme song. Uh, we found out that after season one, they changed the lyrics a little bit. Yeah, because she'd already made it. So <laughs> then it became Who Can Turn the World On With Her Smile. Sonny Curtis, of course, the writer and the singer of that theme song, who joined us last week on the podcast. This time around, more on the Mary Tyler Moore Show with author and television critic Jennifer Cation Armstrong. Well, I want to talk about uh, Mary Tyler Moore with the 50th anniversary uh, coming up. And people may be surprised to realize that uh, after the success of the Dick Van Dyke show, she went into a bit of a, a professional slump. And in many ways, it was Dick Van Dyke who pulled her out of that by having her on his uh, special Dick Van Dyke and the Other Woman. Yes. That is very true. She had done, you know, she had done kind of like a contract thing with a studio that a movie studio that didn't work out and the series of kind of flops. She was involved in a notorious flop on Broadway, a musical version of the of Breakfast at Tiffany's, and just was not quite going the way anyone thought it would go. Right <laughs> for her after she had had this incredible role on the Dick Van Dyke Show, and yeah, he invited her. He was doing one of those variety specials that they used to do and um, invited her to come on that and, you know, even put her in the title to some extent, right? Dick Van Dyke and the other woman was a joke about how people always sort of like thought he was married to her in real life um, and would be, would give his wife dirty looks. Um, <laughs> and I watched the special as part of my research for my book. And it really makes sense that she got a show out of it because she's just delightful. You know, he really sort of let her shine and let her have a good half of the show. And, you know, she, she did sing and dance and all of that stuff too. So it really let her use all of her talents and everybody just, you know, was bowled over and reminded that she should be on television all the time. So that is how we got the Mary Tyler Moore show. So how did Mary and her husband, Grant Tinker, get together with uh, James L. Brooks and Alan Burns, who ended up being the producers? Uh, yeah, uh, Jim and Alan had had been working on a show called Room 222, which was not as what, you know, it's not as remembered now as the Mary Tyler Moore show, but was really well-respected and well-reviewed at the time. And Grant Tinker loved it. And he loved their work on it and really wanted to bring them in because he thought, rightly, I think, that these guys had kind of a vision that was going to spin television forward. He loved that they were very interested in sort of realism, you know, grounding their characters in realism, making them feel fully realized and also having them face, you know, modern, real issues and problems instead of just kind of like we were coming out of the sixties when you had these shows like I dream of Jeannie and Gilligan's Island and the Beverly Hillbillies, they were almost fantasy. I mean, they really were fantasies, right? These were not gritty, <laughs> realistic shows. <laughs> not even gritty is not even the point, but like these were not, you didn't watch those shows and go like, I really relate to these characters. You, they were just like surface level jokes. And kind of, I call them bubblegum sitcoms. You know, they're just sort of like pass over you. You enjoy it. You forget it the minute you turn it off. It's it's pleasant, and then it's over. Um, they really wanted to do something more substantive, and Grant thought that that was going to be something that really changed television, and he was right. One of the big obstacles early on was their idea that Mary's character would be divorced 
that didn't play well with the brass at CBS. Right. So that is immediately you see it's like this. And the, the problem with hiring these guys was that they were going to insist on, you know, I think that the network when they hired Mary thought she was going to kind of do the same thing, like maybe a combo of the Dick Van Dyke show and I Love Lucy, right? Like she'd be playing a, a pleasant housewife, but she'd be the star of this time, you know? Um, and instead they came in with this crazy idea that she should be a woman, um, you know, coming out of a divorce and going out on her own because they felt like this is something a lot of people are dealing with right now. It was 1969 when they pitched this and when they pitched it, it did not go well at all. Um, kind of famously. And, you know, it's funny the things people would say out loud at that time, you know, <laughs> it's like, um, According to many accounts, including like the I talked to some of the executives that who had been in the were like, yeah, that's what we said. You know, um, they they felt like, you know, divorced women at that time. One of them said they I felt like a divorced woman was kind of a loose woman, yeah. um, you know, used <laughs> goods. And there was this idea that maybe um, audiences would be upset because they'd think that she had divorced Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> Um, which I love the way that they used to think about their audiences. You know what I mean? Like, how dumb do you think? Like, they think that their audiences are some other species of person that's much dumber than themselves, <laughs> um, which explains a lot. But um, didn't have a lot of faith in audiences at the time. And But, you know, they really just didn't want to do it. They didn't want to sully her reputation. They were scared. She had this very sort of good girl reputation. And one of my favorite things, is that they called on the like, you know, research guy at some point and said, and the research guy said, the things that people don't want to see in leads of network television shows are people with mustaches, people who are divorced, Jews, and New Yorkers. Um, and it always makes me want to, there's probably a show out there that has literally that as their lead. Um, it always makes me want to make that show. Um, and I think it's also funny that the Mary Tyler Moore show goes on to address actually basically all those things, except I'm sure there was somebody with a mustache. They weren't really big on mustaches. <laughs> so other than that, they end up having, you know, the spinoff of Rhoda that is a Jewish character. Um, Rhoda gets divorced. Mr. Grant gets divorced. You know, they, they snuck it in eventually. Uh, eventually, they decided to have her be single, coming out of a bad relationship, uh, and then it became time to to get the show going, shoot a pilot, and prepare for all of that. And and I love the story you share in your wonderful book about the creation of the opening sequence that's become so iconic. We talked to Sonny Curtis uh, last week, and mm. he shared the story of recording the song. But uh, was it uh, Reza Badoy, as I get that right, who had created yes. those those great openings for Get Smart and Hawaii Five O that they brought in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love you know I've. I've been talking about this recently because I'm teaching a, a class on sitcom history online. And um, I've been really thinking about opening sequences and like, this is the golden age, right? Of that mm. this was when you really did it up. People weren't going to change the channel on you. Um, they were there to watch the show and this would be, this would establish the mood of the show. And this really does it, you know, it, it actually has a classic, you know, thing that comes goes back to that some of those 60s shows like uh, Gilligan's Island in particular, it is telling you the story of the show, right? It is telling you the setup. 
that she's on her own. Will she make it? Blah, blah, blah in the song. And the song is incredible. And then it kind of has this modern bent, too, where they went to Minneapolis, shot a bunch of stuff on location, which really grounds the show. It does make you actually kind of believe it's in Minneapolis when they definitely shot in Los Angeles because they've got snow. They've got her by the lake. They've got her running around in her miniskirts and boots going shopping. (laughs) And, of course, the big final moment um, when they had her throw throw her hat in the air Um, I believe the idea was kind of like the inspiration was it's sort of like graduation. You know how you throw your cap in the air if you have a graduation. And she had this beret on and they were like, why don't you try it? Um, I I think any iconic moment, it's very rare that someone says, like, I'm setting out to make an iconic moment. Here we go. Um, And this is no different. It was just like a good splash of inspiration. And another thing is that they um, talked about how they realized they had to freeze it in the air like it's up in the air her cat her hat's up in the air and they have to freeze it because it's like very sad if you just let it plop <laughs> back down on the ground again like then you're just, no this isn't it um so yeah this becomes this unbelievably iconic moment i mean you can still it's possible that there are kids now who would understand this image but who have never seen the show you know it became the the shorthand for a woman free and on her own she's throwing her hat in the air you know um i think lots of people have done that when they've moved to like new york to be on their own or whatever it's just become this symbol that's even bigger than itself we're talking with jennifer cation armstrong author of mary and lou and rhoda and ted the story of the casting of the show is very interesting as well uh, ted baxter is so perfect in the role of uh, uh, Ted Knight, so perfect in the role of Ted Baxter, and yet uh, they were looking originally for uh, maybe somebody like a Lyle Wagoner, and even what gave three readings to John Aniston. I know I love it's one of my, I'm I grew up watching Days of Our Lives, on which he <laughs> made his his life's work after this. So I, and also of course Jennifer Aniston's dad. Right now he was so was he Stefano Demira? Was that him? No, no, I no. I can't think of his name. He was another guy who was like also rich and also a, a little evil, but slightly okay. less evil. That's what I remember. <laughs> um, and he did have a mustache. Uh, so there you go. Very handsome man. Um, and yeah, they were going for more. And one of my favorite details of this, this is the magic of casting to some extent, because people go in with an idea, but then they see something even better and they make the character around that because their original idea if this kind of makes you cringe too, was actually that that character would, would possibly be a love interest Mm. for Mary. Um, I shudder to think about so many different ways that would be terrible for the show, but you know, you can understand the instinct at the time. That's a normal thing to do in a sitcom cast is have kind of a, like maybe will they, won't they. And so they were looking for a more like handsome young, I'm not saying Ted Knight wasn't handsome, but you know, like this, a type that Mary would go for. Um, and they ended up instead seeing Ted Knight and just loving him so much that they built that character around him instead. And he's so he was so good that it was like became a problem for him to prove to people later. You know, he, he felt it because he was worried people were going to think he was as dumb as his character. It was he was so good, though. And I love the story you tell about him uh, maybe sealing the deal by stopping at a thrift store on the way to his audition. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he. I mean, he he decided to do the classic like dress and character moment, um, and 
it, that really does work. You know, I think seeing the per and it probably helps with acting. I'm not an actor, but I can see how it even helps with acting. Like you're wearing this thing that isn't you and you're being this guy and he's so funny. Like that's the thing. He's just so there's something special going on there. Like there's something about playing a sort of dumb character, right? A dim-witted character, a vain character that I, I always think it takes the, the best actors to do that and make it good and not make you hate the character because you really love him. You feel for him. You're rooting for him despite it all. Jack Klugman was the guy uh, they really wanted to play the part of Lou Grant, but he had just signed a deal to do The Odd Couple, and so they brought in Ed Asner, but it, it didn't go very well during his first reading. Yeah, this is another one that um, was really kind of like contentious behind the scenes, you know, because especially when you're dealing with network executives, the network executives just heard this and went like, no, we hate this idea. Um, Ed was such a good dramatic actor and was known of course, and continue, you know, like afterwards he did this a lot too. He would often play um, with what he called heavies, you know, like um, like kind of a like a, an evil character, conniving character. Um, and there was concern about him being funny, you know, and I think he plays this character with such conviction that that's what makes him funny. He's never doing jokes. Like right. he's not telling hilarious, you know, he's not trying to be a comedian. The part, part of what's funny about him is he has such conviction in this role as this like guy who thinks he's this model of masculinity, but often, you know, has his own foibles. And that's what's sort of touching and sweet and funny about this character. I mean, when we eventually get to, you've got spunk right in the <laughs> pilot. Um, that's why that's a funny moment because he delivers it with such, I don't, menace is a little strong a word, but you know, like it's it's the strength of the delivery that that makes it. Uh, Valerie Harper was certainly, as you point out, not what they had in mind for the character of Rhoda. It's really funny when when you're saying them one by one, I realize almost every one of these characters is like this is not what they had in mind, <laughs> but this is what they but they were smart enough to go with the sort of alchemy of oh, this is a great person. We're gonna we're gonna write toward this person instead. Um, yeah, this is another one, and it's such a strange time to some extent, too, because it's like at that time they really felt like, okay, we need her to have a sidekick, a best friend, whatever you want to call it. But in like they felt like it was a rule that she had to be, as they said, schlubby um, <laughs> because Mary gets to be the pretty one, right? Um, couldn't possibly have two pretty girls in one scene, which is kind of odd. You'd think they'd want all of the pretty girls. Um, but, yeah, the idea was, she was not supposed to outshine Mary in the beauty and glamour department. And, you know, Valerie is gorgeous. So, um, you know, that was going to be a problem. But and at first they actually tried. If you watch the early episodes, you can see that they actually try to, like, dress her down. She's in, you right. know, baggy gray sweatshirts and stuff. Um, eventually they just give up and let her be super glamorous. And it works out great. But um, that was a concern for them. But they saw that, first of all, she's a really funny actress and she had been doing like improv and stuff on the road. So she's, you know, that's, she's like very quick, um, which is great. And they also, I think, saw the chemistry between her and Mary. These are, you know, they were really friends in real life. Um, they had a lot of differences, just like their characters, but they were friends like that too. And, I think they really saw that kind of spark going on between the two of them, which was super important. I mean, think of like 
this is an iconic pairing, ultimately. This is, you you know, people would used to say, like, are you the Mary or are you the Rhoda mm. in your friendship, you know? And um, this became one of the big, iconic sitcom friendships of all time. A fascinating story about the, the taping of the pilot episode. Uh, the air conditioning went out. It was hot in the studio. Things didn't go well. The audience didn't react. Ed Asner was perhaps a bit too intense in the delivery of that line. And interestingly enough, it was the youngest cast member who who maybe bailed them out. Uh, little Lisa Gerritsen with her response to Rhoda. When they tweaked that, it seemed to make all the difference. Yeah, I love this story. And it's like one of those things you can never truly know if that was the thing or if it was just like a bad day and a good day. But they really talked about it. As you said, it went terribly with this live audience in a test run. And they like Mary cried because she was like, my my show, everyone hates my show. My show's going down. Um, Grant called the, the producers and just said, it was like one of the few times he was sort of gruff and he just said, fix it. <laughs> um, and they were like, oh. So they stayed up all night, tried to figure it out, and eventually just decided to make only one change, which was that Beth, Phyllis's daughter, who's about like 10, 11, 12 in there, um, says, so the, one of the problems was, we have to say, that uh, people did not like Rhoda. Rhoda was um, scary to them. She was coming on too strong. If you remember in the pilot, she is trying to get the same apartment that Mary wants. Right. And so she's being a little New York about it. You know, she's like basically planted herself as they were ready. Um, she tells Mary she's going to get it. and She better just give up and go somewhere else. Um, and so people didn't like somebody being mean to Mary. They felt very protective. And so the the fix was for this little girl to say, you know, something along the lines of, you know, don't worry about Aunt Rhoda. She's actually really, she's really fun or something like that. Um, so basically the idea was if the little girl expresses that she likes Rhoda and, and even, you know, more clever in one line kind of acknowledges, yes, she's comes on strong, but don't worry, you'll love her. Um, that seems to have made a lot of difference. I, I you know, like um, Ed also told me he felt like he tried to dial it down like two notches. The next time he did, I hate Spunk uh, because he had maybe scared. That was another uh, character who kind of scared the audience. Um, so it seems like, you know, they all made their own little micro adjustments. And obviously it went, you know, it was not a gigantic success out of the gate, but it was it went over well enough that, you know, they were able to make their initial episodes and really prove themselves and by, you know, eventually continued to get picked up, obviously, for seven seasons. Well, and there was no guarantee, as you mentioned, that it would get past the initial 13-episode order. But really, uh, Fred Silverman comes uh, in across as one of the heroes of the story for believing in it, but also being willing to move it out of a pretty dead slot on Tuesday night to Saturday night, even before it premiered. Yeah, this was, I mean, so Fred Silverman came in and took over at CBS. Like, he was a new guy, and... This this was a big deal in TV history because kind of related to what I was saying before about the 60s shows, he enacted, and it's really hard to say when you say it out loud, what, what they called the rural purge. Uh, and this was all these shows like Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres. And this was, there was this idea that there were all these shows that were kind of rural-ish. What was the, the Pat Buttram line? They canceled everything with a tree? 
canceled everything with a tree um, because there was clearly at the time a different, you know, there are trends. And I, I think that that time they were really trying to court, you know, maybe the South and the Midwest. And then um, honestly, part of this is, is dollar based because they got more sophisticated about how they measured um, audiences and like, you know, would get into more socioeconomic specifics at this time. And advertisers started to say that they really wanted um wealthy, professional, young, usually urban audiences. And so, um, you know, Fred decided to sort of bring in, you know, build up this show as well as add in things like the Norman Lear shows, All in the Family and whatnot, and really made the the extraordinary decision. Like, no one was sure Saturday night was even going to work. It was just that he did want to get it out of, you know, the Tuesday slot that wasn't working. But... um he, you know, no one was absolutely sure the Saturday thing was going to work, especially for the exact audience that they were saying they wanted, right? That those should be people who go out on Saturday nights. And when they ended up putting together this incredible lineup that, you know, eventually includes all in the family and um, the, I want to say it right, the Bob Newhart show. Uh, and that, you know, so they start to kind of figure out this is what people like. And it became this legendary lineup. And people would stay home on purpose to watch these shows. And it was like a, a cool sign that you were going to stay home and watch these shows. But it was all kind of, it was a big upheaval and it was pretty experimental at the time. But it, it ends up changing television in a lot of different ways. Well, I thought it was very interesting, too. Uh, it was a competition in many ways, but but also it raised the bar for everybody when All in the Family came on the air. And, and, and the writers, the producers uh, talked with you in the book about how they would they would watch All in the Family. And even though it was a very different type of show, they realized they, they had to step up their game to be at that level. Yeah, and I thought it was funny. They talked about there's one episode, and you can feel it if you watch it. Um, there's an episode called some of my best friends are Rhoda, um, <laughs> where they do address Rhoda's Jewishness. So that's kind of exciting because it was a little bit of a coy game before. But um, the episode is basically like, you know, um, Mary makes new friends and the friend belongs to this country club. And it turns out Rhoda can't go with them because she's Jewish. And it's a very sort of you see how that's very kind of all in the family ish. It's, mm. it's an issue. It's like one issue. Let's discuss it. Um, and it's not their best work. And they, they knew that too afterwards. And they were like, Oh, we need to not like, we need to not try to be all in the family. You know, we need to just stick to what we do. And they, they do address issues, but in a, in a very different way, it's a very character-based show. And so the way that they end up doing things, one of perhaps my actual favorite example of this is that there is a scene where, Mary is going to have dinner with her father. He has come over for dinner. She's trying to have a better relationship with him. And so the mom brings dad over, and then mom is leaving the apartment to leave them to their <laughs> father-daughter time. Yeah. And mom says, don't forget to take your pill. And both Mary and the dad say, I won't. <laughs> and there's like a quick pause, but that's all. Like, they never talk about it again. And what's funny is I don't even know if, like, if kids now watching, I don't know if they'd get it. I don't right, know if they right. would understand what happened. But the idea is that they're telling us that Mary's on birth control pills. <laughs> and that was pretty new at the time. And it was pretty modern. It was pretty, like, out there because it also does, it does a bunch of stuff, right? It also tells us 
Mary probably is having sex, (laughs) (laughs) which was not something there's another time right around the same time that they do explicitly address that. But like, it's rare on the show. It's not sex in the city, you know, so we can, they usually let us draw, draw our own conclusions about her life. But, you know, if, if all in the family did a birth control pill episode, you'd know it. It would be the birth control pill episode, you (laughs) know, and there would be 22 minutes of arguing about whether it's okay to take birth control. Whereas this was like, their idea was kind of, let's show people they love Mary by now. Um, let's, let's show them that, you know, the girl they love who is very responsible and respectable is on the pill and that's okay. You know, it was, that was sort of the idea. And also just as a character trait, like this is a modern woman living on her own. She has been without a significant other for several years now. Yes. She is going on, on dates and probably sleeping with some of them. (laughs) We're talking with Jennifer Keisha and Armstrong. Well, one of the things that makes the Mary Tyler Moore show such a revolutionary and important show in TV history is the role of women on the writing staff. And, and can you talk about the contributions of, of people like uh, Treva Silverman, Susan Silver, and, and, and Pat Nardo, who began as uh, the secretary for uh, Alan Burns and Jim Brooks? Yeah, I mean, this was really my inspiration for writing this book was when I found this out. But it all goes back to what we were talking about with Jim and Alan's kind of approach, which is that they really wanted things to feel real and they wanted things to feel like of, of its time, you know, and they knew that if they were making a show about a single woman in the 1970s, um, that they had a problem because they were not single women in the 1970s. They were married men. So they needed to get some single women to contribute. And I think that's great because we're, we're still, we're only just getting to this point now with some shows, right. That we've realized like women should be in the room while women characters are being written. Black people should be in the room when black characters are being written, et cetera. And so they were really smart and also really progressive because they then realized there were very few women who were experienced in writing television comedies because there's no pipeline. No one had let them do it yet. So they didn't just say, okay, we give up. Um, they really sought out and mentored women who could do that. So Treva was an exception. She had, she had been one of the few out there already writing for shows. She had written for the monkeys and love American style and stuff like that. So she was an easy one. They knew her, they hired her from the beginning. She, and she is brilliant. She's so good. Um, but the others, you know, they would take women who are a little less experienced in writing for television and kind of, you know, mentor them along. So somebody like Pat Nardo is a great example. Their secretary was help was there typing their scripts and she would often suggest better jokes than what they had. And they said, why don't you do this? So she did, you know, and this was. I I think, again, this is something that people could still learn from today. A lot of times we say like, well, nobody, you know, no people of color applied or no women applied. I guess we don't have any. Um, You can seek them out and you can help mentor people who don't have as much experience, you know, and that was what they did. And these women, you know, a lot, a lot of my book is stories from these women saying like, 
here's the story that happened in my life, and here's how we turned it into an episode of the show. One of the great examples is the, the episode about the bridesmaid's dress, and, and both uh, Burns and, and Brooks said, yeah, we, we never would have thought of that. Yeah, I love that story because I think that's Susan who said um, she, she, she said, you know, they thought I was brilliant because I just came in and told a story that happened to me in my life. And I think this is also so telling about, you know, the telling of other people's stories besides white straight men, right? Because white straight men are like, that's amazing. I can't believe that happened. <laughs> and it's just normal to to the woman who's telling it. And because it is funny. It's just that it wasn't, it hadn't been told a million times on television already or in movies before. And so it, everything felt fresh because it was like, oh, this is incredible. I didn't know this went on. Things like, yeah, like things like having to deal with bridesmaid dresses or there's lots of, I feel like there's a, a number of fashion issues that come up. Um, there's lots of, you know, just date stories from the female perspective. Um, and and stories about women's friendship, too. That's one of the things that the show was uh, was mm-hmm. so ahead of its time in dealing with friends. There's a, one great entire episode when Mary and Rhoda aren't speaking to each other. Yes. I feel like that's another, that's such a, like, it comes, you can tell that it comes from female writers. Like, you can tell when you are a woman, you can tell when things were written (laughs) by, I mean, I'm not saying no man can ever write about women, but you know what I mean? Like, you can often tell, like, oh, this, this happened to somebody. And I also wonder if men would even, you know, I don't even know if they would pitch that story, right? Because they would almost, they would almost be scared to, Mm. to pitch that kind of story. Whereas this is very real. It feels real. And it, it feels so emotional to us when, because Mary and Rhoda are such a good friend couple, um, when they're in a fight, it's just like terrifying, you know, like it's very stressful. And this is something I would also say the show did really well in general, which is emotion. Um, that is something that was definitely absent from like those 60s comedies that I was talking about. They really were great at very easy toggling between, you know, funny and serious and making you cry and making you laugh. It doesn't feel like this forced thing. It just happens because it's such good writing. One of my favorite stories about the show, because it says so much about the creators of the show, but also that it was a different time 50 some years ago, mm-hmm. is the story of a, a young man. I hope I get his name right. Is it Joe Raynone? Yes. Yeah, Joe Raynone is my favorite. Um, he was such a find for me in uh, my research. So as I was going along talking to people, what's, it's funny because he kept coming up. So he's just a, he's a fan of the show. That's it. <laughs> and it just was bizarre to me that multiple times unprompted, the producers or writers would be like, yeah, there was this guy. What, you know, one or two of them actually remembered his full name. And, and it's such a distinctive name, you know, that I became pretty obsessed with i was like this guy's got to be out there right so the idea the thing was that this guy would write them long multiple page letters every week where he would i mean it's it's a very like i always say he was was a proto blogger right because who would have thought to do this then it would just was not done people didn't think about tv this way usually then but he would write these multiple page letters in which yes he was saying he was fan and he was doing it out of love but he would analyze the whole show the whole episode He'd, he'd tell them everything he liked, everything he didn't like. He'd give it a rating at the end. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I just can't get over the sort of like um, chutzpah of this to some extent. But I, I know he also, I don't really think he expected, you know, 
them to necessarily respond. He's just like, I just wanted to tell them what I thought. And this is, you know, and, and he's this kind of person. He thinks this way. And they really started to like, because it was, it was not something that most people did. You know, they actually kind of started to be like, God, they, they would wait and see what his letter said and like see what the rating was this week. <laughs> and eventually also, I think it speaks to their generosity you know, and oh, openness yeah. that eventually they, um, they, they would send him a birthday card. They, um, invited him to the set and he went and it was like one of the greatest weeks of his life. Um, he got to sit in on meetings. He took a bunch of pictures that are in my book. Uh, he went to the finale. He was in touch with them for a while. Um, it just was such a, I loved that story. I love fan stories. I'm not going to lie. I'm a sucker for them. <laughs> but I thought, especially this at that time, like now we're very used to this idea, right? Because we have access to our favorites online pretty easily. And everybody has an opinion and everybody shares it online. This was not done then. No one, there wasn't even a, a you know, newspaper columnist who was going to be recapping the show every single week, you know? And this guy was paying so much attention that I think they, and, and was polite and nice and everything else. And so I think that really hit them that like, God, this guy really cares about our show at this level. And he was also such for me that I did eventually find him. I'm still, I'm still friends with him. I've recently exchanged emails with him. He sends me Christmas cards and birthday cards. Every year. <laughs> <laughs> he's so great. Um, he's in Rhode Island and he's really lovely. And, um, I just thought, like, it's so interesting. He was this sort of proto-fan nerd and was such a nice entry point into the show to me, like, to show what it felt like to watch it from the outside. And, you know, isn't even maybe necessarily what we think of now as a Mary Tyler Moore show fan. Like, we think now more of, like, shows as male or female or this or that. But everybody watched it at the time, even young men. And he said he had a crush on on Mary, you know? <laughs> <laughs> It's just like I, I loved I loved that whole his whole odyssey there and it was it really speaks to them too that they were so open to him. So Jennifer, what is it today, fifty years later, some forty two, forty three years after the show went off the air, it holds up so very well. It, it remains among I think the greatest sitcoms in the history of American television. Why does it still work? Why is it so funny? And what's the key to its lasting success? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I wrote something for BuzzFeed, actually, not that long ago, um, imploring the youngs to watch the show on Hulu if they have not, because it really holds up. Um, it's honestly shocking to me that it holds up so well. And I think that it's because it it was so character-based because it was so character-driven. It, it is a reflection of its time, which I think makes it interesting to watch and fun. I almost feel like it's so well done. If like you could just tell someone that this is a period piece about the 1970s that, but that was made today, you right. know what I mean? Like Mad Men or something. And you would sort of believe it. And it's because it really stays with its characters and it stays true to them and it tells their stories. And that's it. So it doesn't do this, like, it's not ripped from the headlines. It's not, and this is not, you know, I think All in the Family holds up in a different way as a time capsule, but, like, I think this really is so watchable and so relatable because, honestly, we don't, like, it's, we don't solve most human problems. You know what I mean? Like, 
a lot of the stuff is still the same, even as technology and fashion changes. Right. So, you know, it's it's still weird to go on out on dates, and it's still hard. Unfortunately, it's still almost equally as hard for women in the workplace. A little bit better, but you know, it's still like all of these things are still true, and female friendship is still about the same, you know, and the fashion is tremendous on this show. Um, it's so, so glamorous and cool and seventies. So I just feel like I really, and it's something that has come up recently is a lot of more recent old shows, if you know what I mean, like friends, um, you know, people are rewatching them and going like, why are there so many anti-gay jokes or whatever? <laughs> this show doesn't do that. No. This show doesn't like, it's not problematic. It's crazy. It's not very diverse, but other than that, it's like very unproblematic to modern ears, which is rare. So it also speaks to sort of, I think, the, the sort of high class level of their writing and production and everything else. Uh, Jennifer, thanks so much. Uh, great to have you back on with us again. Thank you. That's Jennifer Cation Armstrong talking about the Mary Tyler Moore show with us on downtown. I'm hard to believe. 50 years ago that that show went on the air. And, and as we talked about, it but holds up awfully well. It really does. You go back and watch an episode now, and it it is still really, really good TV. And that's, I, I think, because like the best shows, it's character-driven comedy. It's an ensemble. And uh, those relationships are what made it funny. It wasn't jokes. It wasn't topical humor, although you know, occasionally... The real world would intrude, but uh, that's what's that's what's and great writing and acting, of course, made it such a great show. Jennifer Cation Armstrong uh, talking about Mary Tyler Moore with us. Our thanks to her and the wonderful Shelley Fabre, and to you as well for joining us on this week's podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time here on Downtown.